Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Twenty twenty was one hell of a year. None of us could have imagined that a pandemic would completely change the way we interacted with one another and that our government would be so very bad at managing it. We had an uprising for justice, an economic collapse, and, of course, a presidential election. Along the way, we had so many important conversations about so many critical issues. This week we're taking a look back at just a few of my favorite moments from Sorry Not Sorry in 2020. I hope you enjoyed them as much as I did. In January, President Trump nearly sparked a major war with Iran with his assassination of an Iranian general, pushing tensions in the region to the brink. I spoke with Senator Chris Murphy as the situation was unfolding. Here is part of that discussion. We're joined now by Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy, who is on the Foreign Relations Committee. Senator, do you believe that there was an imminent attack? Well, first, it's incumbent upon the administration to present that evidence to Congress. But even if there was an imminent attack, and there are always threats being presented to U.S. forces in the region by Iran and Iranian proxies, The responsibility is on the administration to prove to us that by taking out the second most powerful political figure inside Iran, they are preventing more attacks rather than inspiring additional attacks. The question moving forward is whether the administration has given any thought as to how to manage the fallout that comes from such a drastic action. This is the equivalent of the Iranians assassinating the U.S. Secretary of Defense. Uh, Senator, I saw you expressing skepticism about, I mean, we've been litigating these president's embassies claim, and I think it's almost not even a litigatable claim because it just, right? I mean, is that how you're seeing it? Yeah, it's not, it's, it's not true. It's not true. Donald Trump made it up. Senator Murphy, my first question for you is, what did the president tell Congress about this attack? And when, and when did he do so? Well, as you know, the president told Congress nothing prior to the strike happening, which is in and of itself a violation of the law. If the president's taking military action overseas, 
without an authorization of Congress ahead of time. He's got to consult before he takes the action. He didn't do that. Since then, their explanation for why they did it has been changing almost by the day. At first, they said that they had you know, some vague intelligence that this Iranian general was planning an attack against the United States. Then when they couldn't produce anything specific, they suggested there were attacks being planned against four U.S. embassies. I've led the charge to uh, demand that the administration tell us exactly what the scope of that intelligence was, and they haven't provided us with any briefing. And I think the explanation is unfortunately pretty simple. The president made it up. There weren't specific attacks against embassies that were imminent. Uh, The president panicked because nobody was buying his initial explanation. And now we're left in this awful situation where I think most people know the president made up this alleged series of attacks that he claimed were imminent. And I just wish at this point the administration would cop to it, would just come clean uh, and say that it, it was fabricated by the president. And if it's not, then you know why are they wasting day after day with not giving us the actual intelligence that would support the claim that he's made? Right. Well, it feels like he's doing it to get reelected, which is what he sort of said that Obama was doing back when Obama was trying to get reelected. So I think there's something about him that belittles the intelligence of the American people. And it's always so frustrating. That aspect is always so frustrating to me. Well, and there's also this reporting that suggests he went after Soleimani because he needed to play to Iranian hardline senators who were going to be decisive votes on impeachment. Uh, and so if that's true, that he's you know, effectively putting our troops at risk overseas in order to win votes on an impeachment trial, I hesitate to say it's a new low, but that's what it feels like. Troops, millions of civilians that have been at war and in conflict in that region for, for decades. But I just want to back up for one second. And will you explain to us why it's so important that Congress approve specific military actions? Well, I listened to, you know, all of my Republican and conservative friends, you know, talk about their belief in upholding the Constitution. They tend to only care about the sections of the Constitution that are convenient for their ideological positions. There is a section of the Constitution that says only Congress can declare war. And the reason for that is that you don't want that big a decision being made by one person. You don't want the American people to be shut out of a decision as to whether they and their sons and daughters are sent overseas to fight and die. So Congress has to be in charge of that decision. Uh, last week, in our view, uh, the president, the administration conducted a provocative, disproportionate airstrike uh, against Iran, which endangered Americans, and did so without consulting Congress. Iraq's parliament reacted Sunday by approving a resolution asking their government to oust American troops. I think we're seeing the huge ramifications of even one military strike, never mind a protracted war. The president you know, killed this one general and another Iraqi militia leader. 
And the consequences have already been pretty significant. At the top of the list is that we're getting kicked out of Iraq. We've got about 5,000 troops there that are fighting ISIS, and the Iraqis are throwing us out. And you know whether or not you think we should be there or not be there, the fact of the matter is we should leave on our terms. We shouldn't be sort of pushed out of the country in a moment of crisis. That's dangerous. So you know, that's why the Constitution says Congress should have the say, because it just isn't safe to have one person, you know, whether they're as unstable as Trump or you know, as stable as Barack Obama, making that decision themselves. In the spring, it became very clear that a pandemic was unfolding around us and that the Trump regime was not capable or competent enough to protect us from it. As Americans died... Trump and his cronies spread misinformation and refused to act. I spoke with vaccine scientist Dr. Peter Hotez early in the pandemic to try and get good information out to people. Looks like by April, you know, in theory, when it gets a little warmer, it miraculously goes away. Oh, we only true. have 11 cases and they're Whatever all Whatever happens, better. we're totally prepared. We have the best people in the you world. You can't be a politician and shake hands. People come out, when I leave, I'll be shaking hands with people. They want to shake your hand. They want to say hello. They want to hug you. They want to kiss you. I don't Every care. one of these doctors said, how do you know so much about this? Maybe I have a natural ability. Maybe I should have done that instead of running this came out of nowhere. And uh, actually came out of China, which is to keep new cases from entering our shores. We will be suspending all travel from Europe to the United States for the next 30 days. To unleash the full power of the federal government in this effort today, I am officially declaring a national emergency. Let the federal government say these are the guidelines. Here are the guidelines on schools. Here are the guidelines on businesses. Here are the guidelines on travel. Rather than having a scramble of uh, every local government, state government, trying to figure it out on its own, it makes no sense. The system does not, is not really geared to what we need right now, what you are asking for. That is a failing. And a that, failing, yes. It, it is a failing. I mean, let's admit it. First, just from a medical perspective, what makes this virus so different than some of the other viruses that circulate? Why is it so deadly? Well, this is one of the interesting things about this coronavirus. It's not the most lethal virus we've ever seen by a long shot, right? It's nothing like Ebola that kills half of untreated people, nor is it like measles in terms of transmissibility, that is the most transmissible we know, but it's high enough in both categories to give it this unique spin that we haven't seen from a lot of other viruses. Let me explain that a little bit. So the virus itself overall is between five and 20 times more lethal than seasonal influenza, which itself is a bad actor. And it's quite transmissible, about two or three times more transmissible than flu. So you've got something that's not quite as serious as the 1918 flu pandemic, but it's starting to approach that. But it only happens for certain age categories. So this is really interesting. It's highly contagious, and but there's a lot of people walking around with it that are not too sick to stay at home so they could spread it in the community. Let me contrast that with something else. So if you look at the original SARS virus, so this new virus, we were calling it SARS-2, the original one 
which came out in 2003, was you know five or six times more deadly and, and a more serious illness for everybody. So what happened was, if you had that original SARS-1 virus in 2003, it's not like you were walking around, going to Target, going to the shopping mall. You were sick and you were in bed or you were in the hospital. And that kind of kept you out of the community pretty quickly. This one is different unless you're in one of those at-risk groups, and I'll tell you which those at-risk groups are, you're walking around spreading the virus pretty widely. And that's why this thing has taken off so much in central China and in northern Italy. And then in the U.S., it's doing this as well. But if you're unlucky enough to belong to one of the three or four major at-risk groups, that's when you get very sick and have to go to the hospital. So for those combination of reasons, it makes it a very serious national epidemic. And also, I mean... You know, I don't want to politicize this, but the president is giving guidelines and recommendations that, I don't know, vary from interview to interview, right? I mean, it's like every single time we hear him speak, he's talking about something else, some other guideline that contradicts the guideline before. So how can individuals be expected to know the right thing to do when they're getting totally conflicting information from our leadership? What needed to be done, what still needs to be done is, and I've said this in public a few times, is what you need to do in this kind of situation is have a very honest discussion with the American people where you say, you know, you don't say this is just a flu or a cold or this is contained. What you do is say, look, this is a serious pathogen. These are the three or four things I'm most worried about. You talk about older Americans, especially those with underlying disabilities, and you explain why. You talk about healthcare providers. Now we have two emergency room physicians in critical care this weekend, according to the New York Times. And so these are our two or three big populations that we're worried about. And here's what we're going to do about it. And here's why we're going to do what we're doing. And historically, the American people have responded to that very well. Uh, it's just when you muddle the message and say, you know, in, in an effort to reassure that language was used, which tried to oversimplify and minimize it and actually wound up making things much worse. I said, you know, if you had actually gone through the three or four things that you're worried about, and here's what we're doing about it. I think that in itself would have been stabilizing and we might not have seen this volatility, for instance, in the stock markets and everything else. Brianna Taylor, George Floyd, Ahmaud Aubrey. These are names we learned this year that we should never have known. In the middle of June, I spoke with historian Blair Imani about the Black Lives Matter movement, the police killings of unarmed Black Americans, and what it says about our nation. No justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. No justice. Please, please, I can't breathe. 
Tens of thousands braved a hot, humid day to call for reform in the U.S. Capitol. That protest and others around the world have arisen from outrage over the death of George Floyd, who died while in police custody in Minneapolis. I watched a white officer assassinate a black man, and I know that tore your heart out. Protesters facing off against authorities, kneeling and raising their hands in peaceful demonstration. But then, almost suddenly, U.S. Park and Secret Service police began shoving and hitting. Our lives matter. Black lives matter. I want to talk about your book, Making Our Way Home. And I think we should talk about it in the context of the George Floyd murder. As a historian, can you put this murder and the response to it in historical context for us? Oh, absolutely. So in 1936, there was the lynching of Willie Keys in Little Rock, Arkansas. And the public lynching, like, We see the way that there's curfews being put on Black people in Black neighborhoods, the way that there's hyper-militarization and policing of Black communities. That's not new. But in 1936, it was more of the vigilante group doing it, the Ku Klux Klan. So in this context, they threatened any Black person who dared go to work the next day. And I get a lot of my energy from my great-grandfather, my great-grandfather, Big Daddy. He was like, you know what? I'm going to work. And word got around very quickly and it became very unsafe for anyone to even be in the home that he had with my great grandmother and his kids. So he, that evening, had to get into his white boss's car, drive as far as he could west, and hope that he could connect with somebody and remember somebody's address who had already moved out west. Mm. And he did it and that's why my family exists. Imagine with me this scene. It's a scene that played out in nearly all of our families. It's a scene in which a young person, somewhere in our family tree, somewhere in our lineage, had a heartbreaking decision to make. It was a decision to leave all that they had known and all of the people that they had loved and to set out for a place far, far away that they had never seen in hopes that life might be better. Migration is usually a young person's endeavor. It's the kind of thing that you do when you're on the cusp of life. And so there is in all of our families this young person somewhere in our background. My great-grandmother, like, imagine the hardship and the pain of being a Black woman in the South, suddenly having to scatter your kids to different neighbors' homes, Your husband has to flee. You don't know if he's okay for months. And, you know, in my story, there is a happy ending. My great-grandfather, he lived to the ripe old age of, like, I think, 92 or 93. My grandma, Bernadine, is that age now, and she's able to tell me those stories. But if we think about the story of George Floyd, like, this terrorism that Black people have had to endure and face, not because we deserve it, not because it's justified, but because there were no protections. And so I think that when you don't learn those things as a country, right, like, for example, between 1934 and 1968, 98% of the home loans that were issued in the United States, Mm -hmm. 98% were given to white people. 
And I told this to a woman who I think was probably in her 60s or 70s, and she flatly responded to me, well, why were black people not applying for loans? And I was like, so humble and gracious. I was like, oh, okay, let me clarify. And I explained to her that we were applying, but we were getting accepted only on like a tiny 2% margin. And if you don't know that, like she's 60 or 70 years old and her entire life, she hasn't lived the experience of black people or learned about it because it's been purposefully hidden and we've been silenced. So it creates a worldview that is that, you know, that is in contrast with what my grandma went through. And because of that, there's a lot of confusion when there are um, just mass uprising and outrage. And we see things like George Floyd being knelt on for almost nine minutes. And a lot of people who I work with and speak to, a lot of my anti-racist folks, like they are trying to console and help their family, uh, and these are white folks, helping their family members understand that this is not new. When Walter Scott was shot multiple times in the back mm. on video, that was something where we thought, oh, this is going to be the one. With every lynching, the black community was hoping either within themselves or within you know, the government structures that protection would come, that this would be the thing to stop it. And that has not stopped. I mean, even in New York, the NYPD, I think there was two shootings of innocent black people while the protests were happening. So this urgency is not new, but I think in the context of the Great Migration, we had such little power and such little protection as a people, we moved and we had to uproot ourselves by force to make a better life. There's so much to unpack. I th I think I first just want to touch on what you said when you mentioned the way policing works. I feel like this country needs to really be changed from the ground up, from the nonstop killing of Black people to the higher rates of stopping, searching, arresting, charging, and convicting Black people to the way, you know, even police keep escalating and provoking conflict as their go-to response to these protests. It all just feels broken. And yeah. I'm wondering what you think the answer is on how we fix it. You know, for a long time, I tried to do so many things at once where I was trying to like place things into historical context and do the education while also doing direct action work, being in the streets. I'm a former organizer. I was arrested in 2016 in Baton Rouge at the protest of Alton Sterling. And I decided that the best thing for me to do is to teach and to do history. And then at the same time to uplift the folks who are doing really important intentional work. There's so many different streams, right? There's the long-term goal a lot of people have for getting rid of police and really overhauling the conditions we have ending cash bail. We have breaking news out of Minneapolis at this hour where Minneapolis city council members at a rally have announced their plan to disband the Minneapolis Police Department. Hey, thank you, Chris. Well, their main message here was to invest in the community and not the police. Our commitment is to end our city's toxic relationship with the Minneapolis Police Department, to end policing as we know it, and to recreate systems of public safety that actually keep us safe. There's a lot of fights that are being fought at once. We need all of that work. We need people who are doing work that is instantaneous and also work that is institutional and long-term. Not every person I had on the program is someone I agree with politically. Joe Walsh is a conservative radio host and a former Tea Party congressman who is one of the few Republicans with the courage and integrity to stand up to Donald Trump. 
He joined me to discuss why. Our guest is a member of the Tea Party Caucus. His name is Joe Walsh, Congressman, Republican Congressman from Illinois. Congressman Joe Walsh, the Republican, we begin has this been morning defeated with what by appears Tammy to be Duckworth, a building drumbeat within in the Republican Party. District. That it's time to call in the Sandman to pull Donald and Trump off the stage. And has become on the air this morning a new political threat, a potential challenge from one of his own. Conservative firebrand Joe Walsh, a Tea Party congressman, now a talk radio host, and no stranger to controversy and incendiary rhetoric. These are not conventional times. These are urgent times. Let's be real. These are scary times. So the hell with all those conventional things. Today I'm declaring my candidacy for president of the United States because it's time it's time to be brave. Hey, Iowa, Donald Trump has lied to you and he's screwed you. His terrible tariffs, you've paid the price for Trump's tariffs, right? They've made your life miserable. I am ending my candidacy for president of the United States. Look, I got into this because I thought it was really important that there was a Republican, a Republican out there every day calling out this president for how unfit he is. I went to Washington in 2010. I was part okay. of the Tea Party class. And I know just that term, Alyssa, can like drive people crazy because everybody's got 39 different definitions of the Tea Party. I went there because we're bankrupting future generations. Both parties are doing it and neither party wants to address it. That whole thing got taken over because look at Trump now. Mm -hmm. He's increasing the debt faster than Obama did and we're the Tea Party people. But that's what drove me. That's a good point. Where are the Tea Party people? You know what? They're, they're, they're washing Trump's feet. It just, I'll tell you what, Alyssa, Trump's a horrible dude and nothing he does surprises me. He's a criminal. All of my former colleagues in the House and Senate, Jim Jordan, <laughs> Jim Jordan and I used to be friends. I don't even recognize him now. His enablers deserve the worst. I've spoken to enough of them privately. And everything I say about Trump publicly, he's a moron, he's a bigot, he's a pathological liar. Alyssa, most of the Republicans privately, you know this, they agree with almost all of that. Still, though? Yes. Because I remember I went to I went you to D.C. to lobby for the National Endowment of the you Arts. Sat down this with Ted Cruz. I, well, that too, but yeah. that was recently. But right after Trump was elected, okay. remember when he said that he was going to cut funding for the National Endowment of the yes. Arts? I was convinced that's because nobody showed up that had a SAG card to his inauguration, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> so I went and we meet with Republicans and Democrats, and it was no different than normal, except, you know, I was very vocal to say I'm very concerned that this guy will actually cut our budget. Everyone was like, ah, don't worry about him. We know how to control him. He's just the face of this. Like Republicans were literally telling me not to worry. about. Nobody's going to listen to him. We got this under control, yeah. casting him off as being yeah. totally inept and not powerful at all. And, you know, the Republicans would ask for the selfie and they'd post the selfie. The difference between a year later when I went back to lobby, they wouldn't take the meetings. The few meetings that I did get with Republicans, and this was yeah. for the, the Equal Rights Amendment, yeah. they asked me not to post the pictures or to publicize that I actually sat down with. So there was a definite shift. They still don't like him, and they know he's a bad person, and many of them know he's hurting the Republican Party. It's just now it's put on my team uniform because we got to beat the Democrats. And so you, you think it's about them losing their seats? What Alyssa, it's abject fear. 
It's fear of him. It's fear of his supporters. If you stick your neck out right now against Trump, you will probably not get reelected. All of his supporters will turn on you. Why, why put up with all of that? The president's son slammed Romney for his vote earlier this evening. It's flip-flop for political expediency on every major conservative issue that he says he believes in now that he's in Utah again. He has come to Donald Trump for his endorsement, for money when he was running. He blew his chance. Bigly. He's not brave. He's a coward. And it's fear of what the Democrats might do if the Democrats are in charge. I mean, I had a Republican congressman tell me privately, I know Trump's an asshole, but he's my coach and the other team's bad. So I just have to fight against the other team. I mean, that's what it feels like. It feels like, I mean, to put it to put it in the simplest terms, my son, who's eight, <laughs> says, Mama, who's winning today, the red team or the blue team? Yeah. It's so tribal. It's so tribal. It's so tribal. And as a parent, it's terrifying because you know the message that you can control in the home. Yeah. Right? And sometimes I feel like that goes overboard because – let me tell you why. Because I don't know what he's getting outside the home. Right. And so especially now because I feel that a lot of other bad people have been emboldened to be vocally bad and not like in their grandmother's basement bad. So it's it's terrifying to me to parent like that. And I know yeah. that they feel the stress yeah. of it. I know that they do because it's it's everywhere. It's so funny. I was in the car with my son the other day. My husband was talking about Bloomberg. And my son got eight years old. My son goes, Mike. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm like, wait, how do you know that that's his first Mike? name? And he said, Mom, before every single YouTube video, there's an ad for Mike, Mike. Bloomberg. And so oh, they – is that crazy? What a riot. So they're absorbing all of this information. And so then it becomes – in teaching, in parenting, I think it becomes even more tribal. Yeah. And that's terrifying to me, even though I know that I'm part of that. And then you have these echo chambers of social media, mm-hmm. which – is so dangerous because you're just putting things out to the audience that wants to hear what you you have to say. And that's why people like you, you renew my faith in, in humanity because you're putting out something that is very different than what your followers on Twitter are probably expecting. Oh, and Alyssa, like I was a conservative talk radio host for six years. Yes. And I mean, you are browbeaten now. You have to kiss Trump's feet every day. And I couldn't do that and I wouldn't do that. I lost my radio show no matter what. When we work for racial justice, we often talk about equality. Angela Glover Blackwell joined me this fall to talk about the difference between equality and equity and why we need to fight for the latter. Equity really looks at the outcomes that we want for people and it backs into what the inputs need to be. For people that are not black Americans in this country, uh, a lot of questions around what do I do and how do I do to authentically show my support. There's still a long way to go to improve how the medical field treats minority patients, especially African Americans. I have to say there's a despair and a sadness and certainly a level of anger and I'm horrified. I watched someone be murdered over eight and a half minutes. I'm not asking for cheer. I'm not asking for a hand up. I'm not asking for anything. I'm saying that we need a necessary investment in um, the the revitalization and the reset of a new America. 
Angela, in 1999, you founded PolicyLink. Will you tell me about the organization? What does it do? Why did you start it? And a bit about what its goals are? PolicyLink is a national research and action institute advancing racial and economic equity. When I started it 22 years ago, the goal then, and it continues to be the goal now, is to make sure that this is a society in which all can participate, prosper, and reach their full potential. That's how we define equity. And we understand a couple of things that had not been particularly the way that national policy organizations were operating. And that is that local leaders are national leaders. They're solving the nation's problems. And if we're going to have a national policy organization, it needs to be guided by the wisdom, voice, and experience of people who are working for change in their local communities. So that is literally what PolicyLink was founded to do, to be a bridge or a link from the wisdom and the aspirations of people working for change in their local communities to the worlds of policy, local, state, and national. We understand that policy happens in communities and that it is driven by race, that we live in a nation in which everything has something to do with race, that if you're talking about an educational system that educates all children, you're talking about one that is riddled with racism. And if we aren't talking about the way that system has discounted the value of black and brown children, you're not going to come up with a reform strategy or change strategy that's going to produce the outcome that we need. Same is true for transportation. 60% of people who use transportation in this nation, public transit, 60% of people who use public transit are people of color. But our public transit system is not designed around their needs. So we have focused on education, housing, health, transportation, water, all of the issues that determine your life outcomes and circumstances and make sure that the policies are informed by the need, is defined by people who need the most in terms of for policies to work for them, that we're building on the agendas that are put together by local advocates, and that we're bringing these issues into the national consciousness. And so at the national level, we lead with race, we lead with racial equity, and we tie it to the economy because the economy controls so much of the destiny of people in terms of whether or not people can provide for their families, pursue their dreams, and live healthy lives. When you talk about equal access and opportunity, is that what you mean? Alyssa, I didn't use the word equal as I talked about policy link. I talk about equity. And equity really asks, what do we want Take the education system. We want all children to achieve at high levels, graduate, and go on to reach their full potential. Given the history of the nation, given the resources that are available based on race and income and geography in this country, equality probably won't get us there. Definitely, I would say that institutional racism is real and institutional racism exists. When you come from an affluent family, and that has been the case for many Caucasian families, they've come from pretty affluent families, you have opportunities that are unavailable to students who may come from lower, lower socioeconomic situations. And this isn't to say that all minority groups, whether it's Hispanic or African Americans, come from lower socioeconomic groups, because that's not the case. You can't just say every child's going to reach their full potential if we make sure that their teachers have the same amount of preparation, that they're going to school for the same amount of time. You have to ask, 
Where do we want to go? And then back into what's needed. And what's needed is probably a different level of investment. In schools where parents don't have money or time for violin lessons and piano lessons and excursions to the museum, the schools have to be able to provide that. In a system where many children come to school with asthma and diabetes and other issues, the educational system probably needs to have medical and health services related to it. In a school where children don't have access to broadband and computers at home, the schools might provide that. So it's not about equality. It really is about making sure that we're making the investment necessary to achieve the goal that we want. And that's equity. I want to really unpack this for my listeners. When you talk about racial and economic inequality in America, can you give us a quick like contrast of a hypothetical white child and a hypothetical non-white child in America and how their lives most probably play out differently because of the lack of equal access and opportunity? If we're thinking about a six-year-old Black child living in a neighborhood of concentrated poverty where almost everybody else is poor, and you think about a white child, same age in another part of the city, where most of the families who live there are middle class, upper middle class, where the parents have jobs that allow them flexibility. That child living in the poor Black neighborhood is likely to live in a neighborhood where it is difficult to get access to fresh fruits and vegetables because it's very likely there is not a full-service grocery store there. I don't think this was an accident, you know, not to build grocery stores in this area because the people here, you know, it's not just about Black people, it's about poor people. What you'll find is corner stores that sell liquor, that sell chips, a convenience store. Whereas the white child in the middle-class white neighborhood is going to find multiple grocery stores, lots of farmer's markets, lots of places where families can get fresh fruits and vegetables. The black child is likely to live in a neighborhood where there aren't a lot of safe places to play. There are not going to be that many parks. And if there are parks, they probably aren't kept up. And because the city will allow homelessness to be able to pop up in that neighborhood. You may even have homeless people living in a park if it exists at all. And there may be trash and other things that really show that the city is neglecting that neighborhood. In the white part of town, they're going to be clean, sparkling clean playgrounds. There might even be playground workers there and all kinds of other things that make the neighborhood a safe place to play. That black child is likely to live in a neighborhood if it is a boy that as he gets older, he's going to be made to feel like a criminal because the police are going to be constantly stopping him, constantly making him feel that he is wrong for one reason or another, even though that boy is not going to be doing anything other than playing. In that neighborhood, the white child assumes that he is a boy. As he grows up, he will think of the police as being his friends because they will be looking out for him. He probably won't see them that much at all. But if he does, he will not view them as a threat. And nothing about his experience is going to make him think he is a criminal unless he does something very criminal.
Stephen Miller is a white nationalist working out of the Trump White House. Last spring, immigration attorney Hassan Ahmad and I interviewed Katie McHugh, a former white nationalist and Breitbart editor who saved and released emails from Miller detailing his despicable beliefs. You will not replace us! You will not replace us! You will not replace us! Hello, Charlotte, we're back! We have a message. White Homeland shall be allowed. We're back. You will not replace us! You will not erase us! Hello, Charlotte, we're Heimbach sees overlap between Trump's message and white nationalist ideology. He has shown us that the majority of everyday Americans support our sort of message. You know what? Yeah, make America great again. Build a wall. Kick these people out. This is my country. This, this all belongs to me. Trump demurred when asked whether he'd condemn supportive comments from former Ku Klux Klan leader David Duke. I have to look at the group. I mean, I don't know what group you're talking about. You wouldn't want me to condemn a group that I know nothing about. One person about. is dead and 19 injured after a speeding vehicle drove into a group of protesters but you marching also peacefully had through downtown Charlottesville. Very fine people on both sides. So we just got in a new batch of emails from uh, Breitbart reporter Katie McHugh. The Southern Poverty Law Center has made public excerpts of emails sent by White House senior advisor Stephen Miller, who was a key figure shaping immigration policy for President Trump. The email messages from 2015 and 2016 show Miller's support of white nationalist websites and ideologies. So Katie, you spent a bit of time in the alt-right. What is the difference, if you can explain to us, between the alt-right, white supremacy, and white nationalism? What are some of the core beliefs that you're aware of as part of this movement? Well, I can say, I think we should begin with Aristotle here. I don't want to sound pretentious, but everything is on a trajectory. This is also just basic calculus. So one of the things Aristotle spoke about was habit. And one thing you witness with the alt-right, because the media treated them as a trolley, humorous force that's just online and it's backing Donald Trump and it's young people. The fact is, is that everything that they said, ironically, and I'm making air quotes, eventually became unironic. So whenever people thought they were, quote unquote, trolling about saying the 19th Amendment should be repealed and you had white supremacist media figure, Richard Spencer, eventually admitting no. I don't believe women should have the right to vote. All these memes and things you see on Twitter and the way that these mobs were organized so much so that they became, it was almost like blunt force trauma when it came to harassment for media figures. They were not joking. And in the case too, with someone like Stephen Miller, who's one of the most powerful people in the US government, especially when it comes to people who are not white. So who is Stephen Miller and why is it so important that we understand his thinking? Stephen Miller is one of the closest advisors to President Trump. He is the architect of Trump's immigration policy and also has the president's ear on foreign policy matters. Stephen Miller, for his entire career, has had anti-immigrant leanings for some people affiliated with the alt-right because it's an amorphous group and doesn't have a membership role, if you know what I mean. They viewed non-white people and people who practice the Islamic faith as not only dangerous individuals, but an existential threat to the country. And this does tie into eugenics, which unfortunately, America has a very dark history with eugenics and race science, and a history which John Tanton drew from. And 
helped shape the anti-immigrant agenda that has sought renewed energy from the emergence of the alt-right and renewed energy from the Trump campaign, in which we now see the full force turned against the most desperate and vulnerable people in the world who are punished purely because of their country of origin, their ethnicity, and the face that they practice. Katie, you seem so articulate and passionate and human. And when we paint these pictures in our head of the other side, we sort of create these villains, I think. I want to be respectful for your privacy and safety. But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you got caught up in the movement so that we could have a better understanding as to how other people get caught up in the movement. Thank you for asking that, because I think that everyone's path is different, but mine could help explain some of the groundwork for other young people currently trapped in this who don't quite know how to get out. The alt-right and the far-right are very much like a gang. You know, there's a no-snitching policy. (laughs) And I think that many, many young people, especially, let's say Trump does not win re-election in 2020 this year, a lot of young people are going to wonder, how do I get out of this? And how do I reconnect with other people again and have a healthy, loving life full of good friendships, good connections across backgrounds? So I will just say that I'm from Pennsylvania, regular conservative town, and I was raised like, I I think the joke is you're born a lapsed Catholic. So (laughs) that was my upbringing, regular childhood. I was very nerdy was, you know, constantly reading. And I was politically inclined. People will always talk about 2004 election. You know, people were very excited about George W. Bush because it's a red county. And 2008, of course, with the banking crisis, things got much more serious. And of course, the Iraq war was still going on. So I was chatting with one of my best friends, her dad, and I was regular Republican, fully supporting the Iraq war and in the war in Afghanistan. And he said, well, why don't you read this person named Joe Sobran? Joe Sobran was a former senior editor for National Review. He was fired by William F. Buckley because he could not control his anti-Semitism. It ate him alive, almost like a neurological virus. And I'm 18. I had never met someone who practiced the Jewish faith, who had a Jewish background, nothing. I didn't understand anti-Semitism. And I was reading this essay that was recommended to me called The Reluctant Anarchist, saying how all government is evil and the Constitution has already been so violated, we just need to go back to something like pre-Articles of Confederation. Okay, (laughs) this is very important to understand is that there is a serious libertarian to far-right pipeline. Very serious. And the far-right, of course, is just steeped in eugenics, steeped in utterly discredited, unjustifiable race science. But that is how it begins. Finally, I want to share with you a segment from my interview with my friend Elizabeth Lesser. Elizabeth is an author whose book, Cassandra Speaks, argues for the importance of women as storytellers. He writes two texts, one called The Theogony and another called The Works and Days, in which he deals with the same myth. And this is the the creation of the first woman, the Greek equivalent of of the biblical Eve, if you like. And her name, of course, is Pandora. Seven-eighths of the plays that Euripides wrote about the Trojan War um, have women as the title characters. So he obviously thought that women were the interesting thing in terms of drama for a war. What is it about a powerful woman-led story and wicked women that... us. Cassandra, you will know the future. 
you will see everything that's going to come and befall the human people, but no one will believe you. Of course, there is Cassandra, who is the titular focus of your book, Cassandra Speaks. What feels so authentic about this is that when she spoke the truth, nobody believed her. Tell us how that's relevant today and how she's relevant today. Well, she was first given a gift of clairvoyance, of seeing into the future by the god Apollo. He was after her. She was really beautiful. And all the gods and humans wanted to marry her. And she went with Apollo because he said, I'll give you the gift of clairvoyance, of seeing into the future. But when she rejected his sexual advances, he spit in her mouth, as the story goes, a curse. Yeah, you can be clairvoyant, but since you rejected me, no one will ever believe you. So she went through her tortured life, predicting everything that was going to happen to her people, all the wars, the sacking of the city of Troy, the death of her parents and brothers. She saw it all. And she'd say, this violence, this warrior mentality, it's going to kill us all. Stop. Mm. And they would all say, you're crazy. You're emotional. You're overwrought. No one believed her. Eventually, she went mad. And the last scene of her story is the city of Troy is burning and she's found clinging in a goddess center to a statue and she's found by a soldier and raped. And that's the end of Cassandra. When I was watching the trial of Dr. Larry Nasser, mm -hmm. you remember the one who oh, abused yes. all the, the, the gymnasts? gymnasts? And I heard them speaking their truth and they had this wonderful judge, Judge Aquilina, and she kept saying to the girls and the women, you speak and I'm going to listen and I'm going to be the first adult who ever really listened to you and I'm going to believe you and I'm going to take you seriously and I'm going to make that man sitting in the corner listen to you and take you seriously. And I felt they are all Cassandras speaking, all these young girls who spoke for years to their parents and their officials. This is happening to me. It's real. It's happening. No one believed them. And, oh, my goodness, we have seen over the past few years so many Cassandras, so many, like you, like Tarana Burke, like all the Cassandras speaking now and saying, this happened. And guess what? It's going to keep happening unless we do something. Stop gaslighting us. Stop making us feel we're crazy. This is true and real. And I feel it's not just our personal stories. We see something that's going on in the world. We feel it. Humanity has come to the end of a long, unbalanced era, one that started thousands of years ago, one that has been both creative and destructive, but one that has run its course and is running away with our future. Women know something that the world needs now. We know it in our bones. It's time for us to transcend the stories of the past that paint women as second in creation and first to sin, and to tell new, bold, beautiful tales of love and longing for a better world. The part of women that can feel into other people's realities, the pain of the earth, the reality of what humans are doing to each other, we have a gift of seeing it and feeling it, and we have to get strong enough to tell it. 
I could not agree more. And when we use myths and stories to tell our story and move our culture forward, it's pretty miraculous. But I think about what impact removing the point of view of women from our storytelling has had on humanity. What do you think about that? Well, I remember when I was so excited that Wonder Woman, the film, was going to come out. Yeah. Like, yay, yay. I'm happy whenever a woman is a protagonist and a woman is a director and a writer. But I was also kind of disappointed because it's not just the storytellers and the protagonists that I long to see change. It's the storyline that, like, the way we change the ills of the world is by kicking ass while looking hot. I know people might feel, oh, come on, lighten up, enjoy a good old film. But I always feel like we've missed an opportunity when we don't tinker with the storyline, that there are other ways to push the dial of change than violence and blow them up and car chases. I think it's so brave and courageous. Like what if Wonder Woman just got everybody off the World War I battlefield and said, okay, sit down with me. I'm going to feed you delicious food. And I'm going to teach us all how to talk to each other, how to listen, how to share resources. We don't have to do this through war and battle. That might sound boring to people. I am interested in making love muscular and talking cool. I'm interested in it being super cool and not seen as some kind of like Pollyanna thing. Right, where we are looked upon as less than if that's how we feel. But I think that that's what living in this male-dominated point of view has done to even our female storytelling. Oh, the door is about to hit 2020 and the ass on its way out. We've lost so much this year. Loved ones, jobs, our sense of safety in our own communities. But 2021 is on the horizon with almost unlimited potential. We will soon have a new president and vice president who will begin the hard work of undoing the damage of the last four years. We have an opportunity to rebuild our American identity as one of peace and justice and equity. We will tell new stories and write better endings. Thank you all for being part of our Sorry Not Sorry community during this shit show of a year. God, I wish each and every one of you peace and health and joy in 2021 and beyond. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs and music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word.